Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club of California. Good afternoon. My name is Ian McQuaig. Uh, Recognizing the importance of the Indo-Pacific region to global peace and prosperity, in November, the government of Canada released its long-anticipated Indo-Pacific strategy. Announcing the plan, Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie said that the current moment demands more of Canada. The Indo-Pacific region is now looking for us to step up our game, acting in Canada's national interests without compromising our values. Rana Sarkar has served as Consul General of Canada in San Francisco, Silicon Valley since 2017. He previously served as National Director for High Growth Markets at KPMG and is co-chair of the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto. Rana, his wife, Reva, and their three children live here in San Francisco. Uh, Eve Tebergen is a professor of political science at the University of British Columbia, a Fulbright scholar, and earned his PhD at Stanford. He's a distinguished fellow at the Asia Pacific Foundation of Canada and a senior fellow at the University of Alberta's China Institute. He is a prolific author and sought-after expert on all things pertaining to Asian affairs and on Canada's role in the shifting global order. In his spare time, uh, Eve farms berries on Main Island off of Vancouver, and he likes to photograph orcas, otherwise known as killer whales, sometimes known as killer whales, and nobody asks them about their documentation status with immigration. So to kick off the discussion, uh, Rana, why did Canada prepare uh, the Indo-Pacific strategy and why now? Thank you uh, so much, Ian, for for having us and for hosting this discussion. It's uh, always a pleasure and uh, it's a pleasure to be on this stage. And in fact, I was just thinking about the last time I was here at the club uh, might have been with my good friend Parag Khanna, who um, uh, released a book called uh, The Future is Asian. And uh, which was a, a few books ago for him, but uh, um, and the title says uh, pretty much uh, what you need to know about uh, uh, about why Canada would pursue a an Indo Pacific strategy right now, and it's not just because you know the the weight of the world is uh, has moved towards Asia, and it's no longer a uh, an, an emerging area, but it has emerged, and the geoeconomics and the geopolitics that have shifted as a result of its rise. And uh, and uh, we of course know all of the numbers around you know four fifths of the uh, global middle class and uh, middle class growth will come out of there. Um, it's a region that uh, will dominate not just um, uh, our uh, global economy in the future um, and at the present, but uh, it will uh, start to dominate our our our, our psychography and uh, start to dominate culture in all sorts of uh, different ways and uh, and it will no longer and the idea of domination will not you know it's not just that you know things will come from asia but we will do things with asia and uh, we'll be working together in all sorts of ways that uh, are, are have been unprecedented and will increasingly be more unprecedented going forward and so this idea of the integration of the Indo-Pacific, which is, uh, we have to thank our Japanese colleagues for bringing that, uh, that word into, into being. And I think it really does capture what, uh, we are, 
uh, the, the the region as a whole. But uh, and and we've had many cracks at this, and as Western countries, I think, in terms of engaging uh, the what was called you know the Asia Pacific or was called um, uh, sort of the Pacific for 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 many years and uh, many other terms. But uh, but this new category, I think comes into play for a variety of reasons. And I think the, the principal ones are um, the, the economic uh, growth that has uh, emerged from, from that region, demographic, but also um, a, a new geoeconomics. And uh, with that, a, a much more uh, assertive China and uh, occasionally disruptive China in the midst of that, which has uh, changed the uh, complexion of uh, the, the geopolitical order and has, uh, has, has, has begged some, some big questions from, from other countries in terms of what a, uh, a response or what a ideal um, international order uh, might be. And so we have been, um, uh, you know, at this uh, this piece of work around building a uh, Indo-Pacific strategy for, with this context, um, for uh, many years now, and it's taken a few iterations. And what I'll say, and you know, we'll get into this conversation with uh, uh, my colleague Eve here about why are a lot of countries building Indo-Pacific strategies right now. And, and what do they mean? Like, what are these, what are these documents? And, you know, I have, uh, Canada's, uh, uh, slender 23 page, um, uh, uh, strategy here, which is a real distillation of a lot of work across different departments, but, um, it also, uh, represents a sea change in the way that, uh, Canada is approaching the world. And we've seen that through, the diplomatic action, not just since um, uh, the current Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has been in power since uh, 2015, but this has been a consistent thread, you know, I would argue going back um, decades, but has really sort of um, uh, uh, gathered steam in the last uh, uh, four to five years for a variety. Of, and, and one of the principal reasons I would say, and these are numbers that are incredible, um, since 2022, when we were all probably sitting in rooms like this, um, Canada has admitted a million new immigrants, and that's two point seven percent of the of the population um, and uh, population growth. And that is an extraordinary number by any stretch. It's the largest uh, immigration number uh, going back many decades, and uh, and and. At that run rate, you know, the complexion of Canada, literally and figuratively, in terms of just the way and, you know, the demography of Canada is changing fundamentally. So one in five Canadians now can draw their lineage to the Asia Pacific. Hello. And, um, but, uh, uh, but increasingly, um, uh, we are more interconnected and not just because the majority of our, our diaspora communities have come in the last 20, 25 years from the Asia Pacific. And, uh, and those are, and, and what that does to a culture, what that does to a culture over time, it pulls us, you know, uh, you know, immeasurably more towards that, uh, that, that, that region. And, and, and so, whereas a couple of generations ago, we could have said that we were, we had an, in a Indo-Pacific strategy, but it would be in the traditional categories. And I think those categories have vastly expanded 
in terms of where we're, we're the touch points. It's no longer just security and e- e- economics and maybe some international assistance. And that was the traditional rubric of, of what a foreign affairs department would create. But now we're, you know, into very different types of engagements with a multifaceted sort of trade strategy. We've got a a culture strategy. We've got uh, uh, engagement along climate, um, infrastructure, things where uh, people, you know, what we say was we want to meet people where they're in need and where their demands are, are, are real. And, um, you know, one of the other uh, stats that I'll just leave you with this is that a, the Asia, a, the, the Indo-Pacific uh, region is also home to, you know, 70% of, you know, the major natural disasters that have, that are occurring. And we're in a midst of a changing planet right now. We're in the midst of extraordinary geoeconomic and, and technological change that, you know, uh, for a variety of reasons we can get into this conversation, um, are anchored in, or at least the major ley lines go through the Indo-Pacific. And so this is a absolutely important time, both for internal reasons and both for external reasons for us to be launching a Indo-Pacific strategy. I, 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 maybe I, I, I'm, uh, sort of remiss right now to, uh, you know, sort of ask the next question. So I'll, I'll, uh, I'll ask the next question of Eve, but, uh, and this was a, a, um, sort of an easy one, but, uh, because Eve, um, played a role as one of the, uh, the members of the advisory, uh, group that actually drafted the Indo-Pacific strategy. And uh, so maybe I can ask them a, a, a very blunt question as to, so what's in it and, uh, um, and why is it important right now? So thank you, uh, Rana. Thank you, uh, Ian. It's a great pleasure and honor being here. Uh, always a joy coming back to the, to the uh, Silicon Valley in San Francisco, where I spent some very happy years. It's, everyone has good memories from the fog to uh, escaping to the beach to all the intense work uh, down on the campus. Uh, I'll, I'll also say that even though I, so I served on the advisory committee, we had many sessions. We spent that summer working hard. We had homework and uh, we had to sign a non-disclosure agreement. So there's not much I can say about the process there. Um, but uh, I could say that the, the overall process had multiple steps, right? There was a bureaucratic process over years, lots of consultation done by the government. Then there was the advisory committee. Then there was uh, more happening within the government and then among the ministers in the cabinet. So we were just, uh, the part I know is just a middle piece and so uh, I cannot claim any, uh, you know, intellectual or political ownership of, of what's uh, in it. But we had some, uh, some great, great discussion. And I'm speaking purely on a personal term as an academic. Um, so there is, I want to say five things about this, uh, uh, this very special document. The first thing is Canada doesn't do strategy. And it's not like the U.S. If you're the U.S., you're this great power and you have to handle all the assets and a huge impact on the world. And basically, you know, there's a lot of responsibility for managing the world. Canada doesn't have that burden and that habit. Uh, you know, maybe Canada believes in mindfulness, but focusing on the present and doing a good job today. Uh, so there are very few uh, great strategic documents. Uh, and in terms of a, a strategic document covering Asia, uh, this is the first one. Actually, there were more targeted ones in the past. There was an action plan with Japan. There was one with ASEAN. Rana uh, knows a lot, a lot about. Uh, but no, this is the first big one. So that's just a big deal. And then it came 
And it's signed by seven cabinet ministers, actually eight plus the prime minister. So it's a big deal too, you know, to get all those cabinet ministers. Uh, and it comes with announceables of $2.3 billion, which is a big deal for Canada. So to be credible, there's a lot of commitments there. Um, and it, it moved uh, a lot of uh, partners. Um, and the intended message uh, for Canada is to say credibly that Canada is now full spectrum long-term partner in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, the Prime Minister said that this strategy represents a generational shift in deepening and strengthening Canada's relation in the region. And uh, Foreign Minister Jolie said that every question that matters to the future of Canada and Canadians, uh, and I guess to some extent the same in the U.S., uh, will be shaped by Canada's engagement and relation with partners in the Indo-Pacific. So there is that big, uh, big piece up front. Um, in terms of my second point is it's quite broad spectrum. Uh, when we talk later of, uh, you know, comparative to other countries, some target on certain aspects. Canada here has taken a broad spectrum approach across five pillars and all regions. So there's uh, several pieces for, uh, for uh, several sub-regions. Uh, so in terms of the content, uh, thematically, there's five pillars. The first one is around promoting peace, resilience, security. Um, and this is an explicit choice by the minister, she said so, to put it as the first pillar. Uh, she said, you know, just what Jonai said a long time ago, that uh, uh, security is what is the, the root of uh, prosperity and of stability. So security, especially in a time of disruption, a time of great power competition, uh, you know, we're, we're back to square one here with security. And so there's a very strong increase of commitments toward the naval presence, the security spending, with money on the table. Uh, and it's probably just the beginning. It's basically a, a big shift in the mindset. Uh, the second pillar is trade, and there's a lot of subparts, including a new uh, uh, trade gateway with Southeast Asia, work on supply chain resilience with partners, natural resource ties, etc. Uh, the third relates to people-to-people -people ties, so there is a commitment to increase uh, visa capacity, and in fact, I uh, saw so today that there are new jobs being posted uh, to hire more officers to process more uh, more efficiently, all the visas. There is also a thousand scholarships to Asian uh, country partners. It's not like 100,000 like the U.S. is talking about, but still a big deal for Canada. Hasn't done this in a while. Uh, there is a feminist international assistance component and a particular target here uh, toward Vietnam, Philippines, and Pacific Islands. Uh, the fourth pillar is climate change, fight against climate change. Uh, and the support to the transition uh, toward a green future. Uh, so that includes major investment in sustainable infrastructure through uh, FinDev. That's a huge part of the money that we just uh, announced. Uh, clean technology in places like Indonesia. And Indonesia is actually now a G7 initiative co-led by U uh, US and Japan, and Canada is contributing uh, big money there. Then Vietnam is another uh, big one. Uh, and clearly here... You know, it's in the context of China's Belt and Road Initiative. So now there is a G7 big credible investment that's targeting uh, credible infrastructure with high quality requirements. Um, and then the fifth is uh, partnerships uh, with Canada pledging to be a more engaged uh, partner with, you know, really working with all the key countries in the region. Uh, and there are se several subparts with North Pacific, you know, Japan and Korea singled out, ASEAN, India, and there's also mention of Pacific Islands. 
Uh, and all this, of course, in the context of a closer relation with the US. So the US is always in the back of the mind for Canada. Um, so uh, the third piece here is that it's a purely, it's a very collaborative strategy uh, and you know, focusing on long-term partnerships. Uh, Japan, Korea, US, Australia, New Zealand for security, ASEAN for green infrastructure and trade and development, India for strategic connections, Pacific Islands for development, human security, green dimensions, and feminist foreign policy. Um, so one interesting dimension here is that Canada is well aware that we are turning into a, a bit of a zero-sum game in the region, and a lot of partners are uneasy with that. Uh, they, especially Southeast Asia, they, they are trying to balance all the partners, but they don't want to be a battleground, right? So they're looking for options, they're looking for partners, and Canada is trying to be one of those partners here, um, understanding the situation. Uh, the fourth big point is that there is a deep component in there, which is a recalibrated, so-called realistic, updated, clear-eyed approach toward China. So there is a big piece on China, and uh, the term that's in the, in the strategy, page seven, is China is an increasingly disruptive global power, which was uh, well-received in the U.S. and, and elsewhere. Uh, it also says that China's rise was enabled by a permissive global system, but China is looking to shape the international order into a more permissive environment for interests and values that increasingly depart from ours. And so in response to that, there is really strong language. All this is new for Canada. Canada had not stated things like this before. It says, in areas of profound disagreement, we will challenge China, including when it engages in coercive behavior, economic or otherwise, ignores human rights obligations, or undermines our national security interests and those of partners in the region. Um, now, there is also a subpart below that, recognizing that partners in the region don't wish for complete decoupling or conflict. Uh, and so there's element of cooperation that remain here under the China strategy on global environmental goods, keeping a stable global economic system with the G20, uh, or simple coexistent guardrails. So there's a particular sentence on that, targeting climate change, biodiversity, global health, and nuclear proliferation. And in this regard, you know, Canada unleashed this strategy November 27, last fall. And then in December, Canada was co-hosting with China. Actually, it was the Chinese uh, presidency of the CBD, the Convention of, on Biodiversity of the UN. And it became hosted by Canada, but chaired by China. And it worked very smoothly, and it delivered the best biodiversity agreement that the planet has seen with 23 long-term targets. Uh, for you know, very credible uh, target by 2030 to increase the, the protection of the planet. And in general, I've been able to debrief with several uh, partners, including uh, some of the negotiators from G7 countries, uh, and they were all praising the achievement of that uh, conference. So somehow that worked, despite all the other tensions. Um, and I want to single out... Uh, there's a bunch of Target 23, but Target 22 is all about human rights. And think about this, something that was co-chaired by China. It says, 
to ensure the full, equitable, inclusive, effective, and gender-responsive representation and participation in decision-making, and access to justice and information related to biodiversity by indigenous people and local communities, respecting their cultures and their rights over lands, territories, resources, and traditional knowledge, as well as by women and girls, children and youth, and persons with disabilities, and ensure the full protection of environmental human rights defenders. So very strong. You know, I've talked to the UN envoy on human rights and environment. He said everything we wanted is in there. So something co-chaired by Canada and China delivered that. Uh, so that's the side part here. Um, and so and finally, my fifth point is, uh, you know, there's some specific strategies embedded in this IPS toward India, ASEAN, and the North Pacific. Uh, our foreign minister uh, you know, was hoping actually even for better relations between Japan and Korea, wanted to play a role in this. And it happened on its own, <laughs> maybe thanks to the good wishes of our foreign minister. Uh, but we, have, we are watching a, a, re a remarkable uh, sort of process here between Japan and Korea that just happened. Um, so I will leave it here and I will turn to my question for you is we, we know that there's a lot of disruption out there. There is economic risk. There is a little banking crisis you know, nearby from here. Uh, there is uh, climate change shocks. Pakistan was completely underwater. Uh, there are you know, natural disasters. There is all kind of airplanes <laughs> passing by each other. And lots of countries are wondering what to do in this environment. Uh, what can Canada contribute to those partners through this new strategy? That's, uh, that's, that's a great lead in. And um, uh, I, I think that you, in some ways, um, got to the root of uh, the response in, in, in your comments. And I think some of that is this, this idea that, you know, you, you need the, the word of the day and the word of, you know, this last half decade is probably resilience. And, uh, and the idea there is that the ability to absorb shock and to be able to uh, come out of shock and be anti-fragile, which uh, is a word that uh, Nisim Talib uh, made very popular, but uh, a few years ago. And, and these two ideas of, of being resilient and creating a resilient ecosystem, a resilient international order um, that could absorb the multiplicity of shocks and the new surface areas of shock that we're seeing, and be they tech shocks as a result of the emergence of new global systems like, uh, you know, GPT-4 and and different forms of AI to uh, uh, to cybersecurity shocks and to uh, the increasing. Uh, data-driven economy that is that represents both significant opportunities and also uh, challenges. Um, we we discussed the multiplicity of climate shocks that people are under, and countries are, are are facing to the point where um, it's you know there are many countries in you know the Indo-Pacific that uh, whose future in these coming decades, if not this decade are in question as a result of uh, rising sea levels. And so we are, we're, and, and you know, you mentioned a, a geoeconomic and, and uh, a, a broader macroeconomic shock that, you know, we, it, we're still weeks into a banking crisis that is yet to fully resolve itself. And, uh, and we, there are still shoes to drop as, 
Uh, the Fed rate goes up, and as global interest rates uh, go up to to fight off inflation, but are creating and potentially have the uh, uh, the the capability of of creating enormous second and third order shocks to things like the commercial real estate business, to uh, the stability of banking systems, and so all of this together, you know, what uh, the historian Adam Tooze calls the poly crisis. All of these together require countries that are thinking across different departments. And so it's no longer a foreign affairs brief to be thinking about these. It's across the entirety of government led by the top uh, to be engaged across, you know, these these cross-cutting challenges. Um, It's going to require countries that are committed to a set of values in terms of the order that they'd like to see. It's going to take a reinvestment into what used to be called the rules-based international system. Um, And those rules are very important. And uh, particularly when they are challenged by very powerful interests in countries that are providing an alternative to that order. And it's not to say that we cannot cooperate. You know, this is, this is, this world is too complex to, um, to, to be able to sort of parse it into, into one or two groups. And I don't think anybody in who's a serious analyst or, you know, as a, a you know, as, as somebody who has, you know, been engaged this actually argues that we should be, you know, uh, bifurcating the world necessarily. I think that, you know, there are natural divisions in the world that are coming up between, you know, um, uh, countries that would like to see a more authoritarian settlement that would like to see, uh, the world, um, reordered along authoritarian lines. And then there's, uh, I, and there's, I think, uh, you know, another group of countries, which is a much broader group of countries that says, hang on a second, you know, we, it took us 150 years to develop this rules space international order. Uh, it took a lot of, um, of blood and toil to really embed that. And, uh, we are not ready to give that up quite just yet. And there are additional, and on below that, there are extraordinary upsides and value to this sort of order, which creates the, uh, the, the substrate under which real innovation happen, which real human flourishing happen. And so our strategy is to say, not to say, you know, look at us, aren't we great? You know, here, here we are with this, you know, 2.3 billion slash our, our, our re-engagement strategy to say, we are here to do the work. We are here to do the real hard work that it's going to take across decades um, to work with our partners from a place of what, you know, I would say is it's, 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 it's humbleness. You know, we mention our, uh, our indigenous um, reconciliation process. You know, a, another point in this is that I also happen to be the consul general for Hawaii. And I learned a lot, you know, in this last five years about, um, Hawaii and the incredible role that it plays in uh, the Asian Pacific Island context being smack in the middle of the Pacific and the role that, you know, we and, and some of the learnings that our indigenous groups and our, our experience with um, uh, working with indigenous communities might play in 
um, the Asian Pacific Island context. And that's, that could be in, you know, sort of improving human outcomes, improving the outcomes of, 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 uh, women and girls, but it also could be about, you know, how we protect our oceans. And so there's in this strategy, there's a big part of the strategy, which is about, um, oceans and ocean management and how we can work with all of our partners and, you know, we are together with Japan there. We're together with, you know, with, in, you know, uh, Indonesia there. We're together with um, New Zealand in this instance, um, working on oceans management. And so how can we um, use some of the tools here um, to promote a set of values that, you know, not just say something is good, but show the goodness in it through the action. And so that's the real... Um, uh, uh, that's the real effort behind this. That's the real, and we start with a place of, of deep engagement, that fifth pillar that you mentioned, which is about staying and making sure that, you know, we are there all along the way, because this is going to be a hard road. And I don't, I don't think anyone who's engaged in this file will tell you that, you know, the future is going to be hunky dory. It's going to be a lot of ups and downs. And uh, to get to the place that we need to be, but we start with that principle of values. We start with that, you know, engagement across all of these different spheres, and we start with a uh, a position of humbleness. So, and I'm going to ask you a question, Eve, as to why. So we are doing this. We're in the midst of this activity, and we're not alone in this activity of putting together this, uh, this, our Indo-Pacific strategy, a a number of other countries you mentioned, uh, earlier today, we were speaking that South Korea, you know, came out with theirs around the same time. And we held back to be honest, because, you know, the world was changing. The U S just announced, um, you know, this, their Indo-Pacific strategy, you know, just over a year ago. And, you know, we have been watching and we have been, you know, looking to how we could be helpful as our strategy plays into this multiplicity of strategies that are out there right now, as people start to really uh, get their heads into what what it is that we need to do for this next uh, decade plus. And you, can you, you know, you've spent a lot of time in Japan, you've spent a lot of time in Asia. Recently, you were, you know, embedded with, uh, with, with many people in, in the region. Can you give us a sense of what other countries are doing and how this fits into the context of what the US and other countries are doing. Yeah, great. Thank you. So this Indo-Pacific strategy space can can sound a little uh, mysterious, right? A lot of people's like what is this about? Uh well, so there's there's uh at least two core pieces in there. The first one is the geographical component, right? Calling it Indo-Pacific rather than Asia-Pacific. So this comes from Japan and India. They were the pioneers and then everyone has followed. Um, for India, the Indians claim they were first, but then Japanese claim. It depends how you count. But in India had this go east strategy going back to 2005, uh, which was for India to break out of the Indian Ocean and to also engage with East Asia. Uh, now, on the Japanese side, Prime Minister Abe, going back to 2007, uh, went to India and, and made the first speech mentioning Indo-Pacific. And the goal for Japan, which was sustained later when Abe was uh, again Prime Minister, was to basically open up the space of the Asia-Pacific, which can be dominated by China. 
and to also recognize the growing linkages that were starting to develop uh, with the Indian Ocean. Uh, and particularly, there was a strong desire by Japan to engage with India. So it led, part of those efforts led to the formation of the Quad, which is the group between US, Japan, Australia, and India. Uh, so there is a geographical thing. Now, they don't all agree on what it means. Korea and Japan include Eastern Africa. Canada doesn't. Uh, US doesn't, as far as I know. Um, so that's it's interesting. You know, and then different uh, groups focus on different things. And also, some, like the US, are ex very explicit that this is about balancing against China. Very direct, and Canada has gone quite some ways in the strategy, but not all the way. Um, and then the others on the other side of the spectrum, you have ASEAN, they never mentioned that at all, right? It's like it's all about inclusive, peaceful prosperity, let's all be nice to each other. So, and that's also called in the Pacific strategy. Uh, and then there's a whole range in between, right? So, so that's about the geography. The other big component in that space is that we, you know, since I've been teaching political economy since, uh, you know, 2000, and the field of political economy, which is all about trade and finance and globalization and all that stuff, was consciously separated from the field of security going back to the end of World War II. Uh, when the gap was created separately from NATO, etc., there was a conscious decision by the founding fathers, mostly fathers at the time, and a few women uh, of the current global order, a lot of Americans, of course, uh, to separate security and trade, for example, because when trade was too securitized, it, it led to uh, dangerous dynamics, uh, you know, tit-for-tat dynamics like in the 1930s that can lead to a collapse of the trading system. So there was an effort to separate and have rules for security. Security is a nasty business because it's a zero-sum game, right? The increase of security of someone often affects the security of the rival. So there is you know, zero-sum game going on. Whereas in the economy, you can do positive-sum game. Everyone can you know, rise together. Well, uh, in the last few years, we see a reconnection of security and, and trade and the global economy. Uh, and all this falls under that space called Indo-Pacific strategy. There's a lot of that effort. Uh, you know, some of it is because of the change of behavior of China. There was a good face effort by a lot of Western countries to embed China in the global economic order on the assumption, you know, the hope or assumption that there would be some move towards some uh, liberal values and also that uh, China would kind of play with the existing rules. Well, it turns out China has turned more authoritarian recently and more assertive abroad. So that has triggered a lot of reactivity, including in the U.S., uh, to, uh, to see this, to see the global economic engagement as a security issue. Uh, then we have the pandemic, then we had the trade war on the Trump and Xi Jinping, then we, now we have the issue of two industrial revolutions, the green technology revolution and the digital technology revolution, AI, and all of them use things like lithium and batteries, and, and suddenly it's connected to security because AI cannot be separated from security. We're going to have automa automatic, automatic weapons and you know, robot killers and all this, so killer robots. So we, uh, suddenly there is a reconnection of what we have to separate from the economy and have a security angle on. And there's this concept of economic security that's growing. So the Indo-Pacific strategic space for a lot of countries is a sort of fluid exploration of that. How to secure 
what has to be secured without uh, engulfing the entire global liberal system, right? Or the entire global economy. So carving out certain space. And so it's an explorative space. That's why there's so much creativity in all those IPS. And that's why every country has understood that they had to play in the space, right? To be active. Because a lot of partnerships are being created, a lot of tools are being developed, a lot of you know, mechanisms, et cetera. Um, so then there is three uh, waves of Indo-Pacific strategies. The first wave, the pioneers, that was J India, Japan, and Australia. Uh, Japan was the most explicit. Uh, and actually, it's a very thoughtful strategy that's built 2016, 2018, and then the 2021 version. Amazing graphics, you know, beautiful, actually. It's very well presented. Uh, and uh, it came around three pillars. The first one is rule of law and maritime navigation. It was partly around South China Sea, the focus. The second one is economic prosperity and infrastructure. That Peter opened the door to having China as a partner. So J Japan kept a door open on the economic side there. Uh, and it was good convergence in 2019 around the G20 uh, in Osaka, which was in Japan, and a lot of interesting cooperation between Japan and China. And then the third pillar is uh, security. Um, and, uh, and so the first and third are kind of pushing back on Chinese assertiveness. The second one kept the door open and did not want the decoupling of the economy. So the Abe strategy was very smart, balancing out things like this. Uh, and himself, he did that. On one hand, he was building military uh, you know, readiness and building partnerships and selling Coast Guard ships to the Philippines and, and so on, and tightening with the U.S. On the other hand, he managed to uh, you know, be involved in, in, uh, in having trade agreements with China, including RCEP. Right? RCEP is the biggest trade agreement on Earth. It involves 15 countries, including China and some U.S. partners. Uh, Korea, Japan, Australia, New Zealand sign, even though we were in the middle of the U.S.-China trade war, and even though the U.S. was not very happy about it. Uh, a regional comprehensive economic partnership. And the amazing part is it was signed in November 2020, in the midst of the pandemic, when there's chaos everywhere. And they did it online, hosted by Vietnam, but all those countries end up signing that agreement and I argue that the pivot there was Japan. And it was part of the strategic vision of Abe that on one hand, we're going to do all the deterrence, all the you know, military readiness, security, etc., partnerships, quad, everything. On the other hand, we're going to stabilize the economic side because you know, Japan exports 25% uh, of its exports to China. Uh, and so Japan cannot just decouple. Korea is 32, Australia is 43. Uh, 43 now, two years ago, it's 45. Taiwan is 43 as well. I mean, so for them, you can't just decouple. The U.S., by comparison, was 11%, that's 10%. Uh, the EU is 11%. Canada is just 5%, dependent on China. Um, so there was this balancing act. And then more recently, under Prime Minister Kishida, with the invasion of Russia in Ukraine, there has been a tilt uh, much more toward value, uh, asserting uh, democratic values, uh, asserting the, the more security pillars. And so that second pillar, currently, as far as I know, there's not much cooperation going on with China. We are more in a, in a more tense period. And it's been a real shift in Japan, you know, in terms of military uh, as well. Mm -hmm. Japan is 
you know, is going to double its military expenditure over the next five years. And it, you know, it was at 1% of military expenditure of GDP since 1955, and it's going to move to 2%. It's a historic shift of a huge magnitude. That's mostly due to Putin and Ukraine. But Kishida is afraid that the same could happen in the region, uh, especially around Taiwan. Uh, so there, that's that. Um, and then the second uh, generation has been really with the U.S. So U.S., Europeans, U.K., uh, much more elaborate, much more security focused. Um, and then the third wave is Canada and Korea. So they have watched what everybody's doing. And the Canadian component does have a big security piece and a security rebalancing or strengthening with uh, I think it's opening a process which would lead Canada to do more even down the line. Uh, and it's additional to what Canada is doing on NORAD uh, modernization with the U.S. It was discussed at the recent bilateral summit. Uh, and some real change. There's a really cha a changing view here of uh, the seriousness of the security situation. Uh, so there is that piece. But, China, but Canada is trying to do other things too work on global public goods, like global environment and global health, the pandemic treaty, all kind of stuff, uh, and work with partners on what they want. So development in South Asia, infrastructure development, and then work on values, indigenous, gender, empowerment. So Canada is doing that full spectrum, but there is a piece there, a pretty serious piece on the security side. Um, maybe I'll leave it there. Yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. maybe I can, mm -hmm. I can jump in. I said the people mm -hmm. and talent side of things is also, mm. you know, a big component of what Canada is trying to achieve. And that's just this recognition. As I said, that number earlier, about a million new Canadians since, um, uh, 2022, um, new, new migrants. Um, we are taking in hundreds of thousands and the highest percentage of anywhere in the world right now of, of foreign students, many from Asia. Um, and it's changing the complexion of not just Canada, but also, you know, the, the, the kind of real economic patterning that's taking place because many of these are people that will go back to, um, uh, to region as well. And, uh, and so it's really creating a kind of a, a, a new dynamic of, uh, of connectivity. Um, the question I would ask, you know, you just from, you know, all of these new pieces of, of strategy that are taking place. There's also been this new alphabet soup of new, what they call mini lateral institutions, um, that have grown up in the region from, you mentioned the quad AUKUS, which is, uh, uh, you know, the UK, the United States and, and Australia, um, which is, you know, largely security, um, you know, or, or around uh, the purchasing of submarines and, and, um, supporting um, Australia's capacity, uh, maritime capacity. Um, but there are many others as well, including APEC, which, you know, is an old one, which we are hosting here in San Francisco at the end of uh, uh, this year. Um, how do these pieces fit together in your view? And, you know, we are, it's a very creative phase, as you mentioned, but how do you see this new architecture in the region uh, coming together? Yeah, so it's, it's a fascinating period of history. It's both exciting and to some extent risky, uh, but it's also a great opportunity, right? In a place like here, usually disruption is seen as a good term. In the rest of the world, disruption is a bad word, but in Silicon Valley, yeah, great. Let's make disruption. Um, and um, so we, we have a confluence of shocks and disruptions happening at the same time, right? The twin industrial revolutions, 
a great power transition. We have moved, moved to a multipolar system. Uh, you know, in 2000, the U.S. was 31% of global GDP in nominal term. Now the U.S. is 24%. Uh, the OECD used to be uh, 62% in 2000. Now it's just uh, barely f uh, no, 48. So we, we have gone down. Oh, in nominal dollars, it was 80, and now it's uh, still 60, 82 and 60. In PPP, it went from 62 to 48. PPP dollars. Uh, and then it, we have seen the rise of China, but also the rise of the global south, where emerging power. So we have a big balancing process going on, moving to multipolar world, great power transition. Uh, and we have acceleration of climate, we have systemic risks. So all this is happening at the same time. That means that every player in the world is watching this, knowing that this is an age of transition. People call it an interregnum. At least it's a, it's a period where you know, the global order that we have had is sort of eroding and there's a need for new things, new rules and new agreements and managing new risks. Uh, and, you know, just AI, by the way, we just had Elon Musk and another thousand top you know, you know, uh, entrepreneurs say that AI is a, is a human existential risk and we need a moratorium for six months, right? And they're saying because in the current context, there's no governance of it, there's no rules for it. It's extremely competitive and everyone is running ahead of the other instead of thinking how to make it safe for humanity. Uh, some books are saying, you know, by 2060, there will be the possibility of AI, generalized AI, non-aligned with human values, right? So we, we have to govern this somehow, right? We have to catch up with this. Uh, so all this is happening at the same time. So in this context... Well, you could do it. One way to do it would be go back to uh, square one and do a UN kind of process, what we call global governance. Uh, and everyone work together. Let's solve climate faster. Let's, let's, solve, uh, let's have better framework for AI. So this, and it was San Francisco, right? By the way, the UN is created here. Uh, so that would be great, but currently it's hard to see. We have pieces that remain. The biodiversity, we just had a treaty on the high seas, protecting the high seas. That was great, just in January. Uh, we have the G20s outside the UN, but it's still doing a few good things. So those are what's left, but a lot of pieces don't work for great in the global level. So when that happens and you need to move fast and everyone feels risk, then you have an explosion of ideas and experiments. So I, th I see minilateralism as a sort of explosion of competitive uh, experiments. There's all kind of entrepreneurs, right? They are institutional entrepreneurs. Singapore has created the, the 3G group. Uh, you know, AUKUS was pushed by the UK. It was the UK as entrepreneur. And then they convinced Australia, and then they convinced the US last uh, to create AUKUS, right? Uh, Quad was the entrepreneur with Japan. So everyone is pushing something to fill a gap um, and, you know, eventually things will have to be reconciled. So Canada, as, you know, Canada is a cautious country, so may not have proactively engaged those things, you know, five years ago, for example. But now Canada has, is putting a lot of energy on joining IPEF. These, that's the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, which is U.S.-led and has now 15 partners, I think, because Fiji joined. Uh, but it's, you know... Japan is key there, and a lot of South Asian countries, and India is in there. Uh, but so far, you know, the U.S. and Japan say, great, you can join. But so far, can, there's a process to go through, and we are not there yet. Uh, the TPP was a piece that was led 
you know, before, you know, a few years ago by the U.S. And then the U.S. decided to get out of it. Canada still believes in it. Japan believes in it. Uh, so this is a great uh, tool. We can have expansion there with the U.K. joining first. Eventually, I guess, Korea, Indonesia, Thailand. Uh, and then there's the headaches because Taiwan and China have uh, applied. I can't imagine China being able to join. Uh, there's enough countries who wouldn't do this. But um, uh, so we have that. And then so AUKUS for Canada in the first instance is not so relevant. Canada is not in the business of nuclear submarine. But if AUKUS expands to do cybersecurity, et cetera, then Canada may try to, uh, to be involved in those pieces. Maybe you know, everything is becoming a la carte, right? Because it's experimental. Uh, the Quad Korea would like to be quite involved and we'll see how it happens. Now they reconcile with Japan at the moment. Uh, you know, all those pieces are moving at the same time. The, and the multiverse, the yeah. multiverse of forms, <laughs> everything, everywhere, all at once. The Oscar winner. But uh, I, <laughs> I, I, I noticed our, our, yeah. our first moderator yeah. uh, uh, at for some questions from the floor. Thank you. Well, we, we have about 15 minutes left and we have a, a forgive me, a multiverse of questions <laughs> from our from our audience. And some of them are quite provocative. So stay seated, please. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but I can appreciate them. Um, here's an interesting one. People are tired of talk about values and engagement and want to hear about actual successes to alleviate human suffering. What kind of specific actions has Canada taken uh, in the Indo-Pacific uh, with respect to ocean management and other areas? Please enumerate them. I, we, this is, you know, um, I think month <laughs> two, I think of, uh, of, 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 uh, strategy, but, um, uh, look, I mean, I think that, you know, that's a very good question. I mean, I think that we are in a, in a moment, um, you know, the everything, every, everywhere all at once sort of moment where action is going to speak, um, louder than words. But what I would say is that, you know, this idea of values, what do we mean by values? It's not just, you know, uh, you know, let's support this for some form of uh, uh, virtue signaling purpose, we are actually, you know, engaged in real things that mean real things to people in the region. So if we're talking about ocean management and fisheries management for something, Canada, you know, we've got 26,000 miles of Pacific coastline. It's a, you know, fishing first country. We know a lot about ocean management and particularly uh, fisheries management. And uh, at, at the international stage, and we are in a position to support countries that are worried about fishing rights, for instance. And these are, you know, dramatic. It's it's not AI, but it is, you know, the sustenance point for so many countries in the region. We are in the position to be able to support them with AI because this is technology-enabled support for um, uh, maritime management and ocean management. And so that is a specific set of, uh, of tools that we will be working with partners to bring to region to work with uh, people on the ground and that are uh, looking to solve a very unique set of problems that they have because, you know, it is, uh, it's, it's getting difficult out there in uh, ocean management and fisheries management. And, and on the ocean side, um, we, we know all about, you know, the challenges of ocean, not just plastics and, 
you know, the uh, acidity levels in oceans, but also uh, the management of, uh, of coastline that is eroding. And that is something that, you know, we can work with our uh, partners in the region, you know, big and small. So big countries and also small countries that, you know, have a stake in this and often the biggest, uh, uh, you know, stake in it because it's existential for them. Um, so those are very specific actions that we'll be taking. I have five bullet points to add to this uh, that were not mentioned, but those are actual concrete things. Number one uh, was making the biodiversity treaty a success, and it's protecting 30% of coastal ocean by 2030. Uh, and if Canada had not picked up the ball when the Kunming process couldn't, was hanging due to COVID, it would not have happened. So there's a huge mobilization around that, thanks to what Canada did. Uh, number two, the high seas treaties that followed in February was mostly building on data by scientists at UBC who just got the greatest environmental prize called the Nobel uh, Environmental Prize. Uh, and they, they had all the data that supported the work on the ICS treaty. In fact, another UBC scientist is the UN Rapporteur on, on Environment and Human Rights. So we have huge involvement in pushing the global governance. Uh, third piece, Canada also hosted Impact 5. That was in Vancouver in January, the biggest uh, summit on ocean protection and ocean management that was co-managed with indigenous people from the entire region. I was active in this and I was involved with support of DFO, the uh, Ministry of Fisheries and Ocean, uh, in bringing nine leaders, indigenous uh, Pacific leaders from uh, remote islands, Salmon Island, Fiji, uh, Micronesia, and Papua New Guinea. And they presented publicly all the data that they have from ancestral knowledge. And they were extremely happy. It's the first time it was sort of a historic moment. Um, Force uh, BC is just closing the fish farms that are uh, polluting because they were having antibiotics and, and getting to the, the deaths of wild salmon. I'm involved as part of the conservancy on my island in, in tracking uh, the, the well-being of orcas and the like. So it's a lot of movement here happening. Uh, and then finally, there will be, uh, there is a piece we should add. Uh, Canada has some of the best technology in tracking illegal fishing. Uh, and so Canada has deployed uh, a ship in Hokkaido in Japan and is helping tracking illegal fishing uh, around uh, between North Korea and Japan. And I know it's been very appreciated by the Japanese and is also shipping uh, uh, technology there. So on, on illegal, unreported uh, fishing, uh, Canada will really step up in the, in the whole region. Mm. Thanks to both of you for that. <laughs> Uh, how are Canada's abundant national or natural resources um, being sought by developing countries in the Indo-Pacific region being marketed for sustainable development goals? I, I well, in a in a number of ways. I mean, so um, we are. Uh, as as many would know, I mean, the largest um, uh, investment into Canada uh, in 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 recent history has been, you know, the creation of a, a, a very large scale LNG facility that um, uh, will, uh, you know, the principal marketplace, and this is all in the context of en an energy transition that's going to happen uh, more rapidly than I think most people sort of uh, have a sense of. Uh, but the principal uh, customers for that, that energy security are uh, in Asia. 
Um, the, you know, there will also be, uh, other, uh, projects that we'll be doing together, um, including on hydrogen and the creation of green hydrogen. I think there's a enormous, the Japanese have been particular leaders in the hydrogen economy, something that we have, uh, um, uh, been, uh, exploring significantly, um, in critical minerals, um, you know, as, as many of you know, uh, China is uh, right now the not just the producer but also the processor of ninety uh, percent of critical minerals that are used in batteries. China is the global leader in battery right now. Um, uh, but in order for us to 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 meet the uh, zero uh, emission vehicle targets that all of us have, like California, for instance, says um, you know one hundred percent by twenty thirty, Canada by twenty thirty five. I mean, these are big numbers. It's going to mean a extraordinary shift in, um, and potentially between 400 to 4,000% increase in, um, uh, demand for things like lithium and other, um, uh, uh, commodities, uh, but also rare earth materials that sort of go into the production of batteries, depending on the battery chemistry that you're, you're looking at. And, you know, there's, there'll be a lot of innovation already within the battery stack, um, that, uh, you know, Canadian companies are working together with our, our partners, not just here in the United States, but also in, um, Europe and in the Indo-Pacific, um, towards getting to better battery chemistries. That's going to require an enormous amount of, um, of cooperation in producing some of those resources. And Canada is, is home to, uh, all of the critical minerals. And, uh, we are, uh, in fact, I mean, we had a, the, the, the second part of this, um, the Indo-Pacific strategy, I think is the conversation that we're having with the, the United States about supporting, uh, and, uh, and also, uh, working together more intensively. We had a, a meeting, uh, president Biden had a, had a historic visit to Canada, um, uh, just last week. And, the it's interesting because the theme that came out of prime minister trudeau's remarks in that was that economic strategy and security strategy and climate strategy go hand in hand in hand like these are these are all integrated and so our abundant natural resources the the principle that we bring to this in all that we do both domestically and also abroad is that um, you know, we need to be working towards sustainable solutions, sustainable, uh, new energy, uh, global settlement. And we are, you know, committed to doing that. And we've, you know, done that through our, our climate goals, but we've also done that through, uh, action at home and, and our, have taken it. We put a price on, 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 on carbon domestically. And uh, we've just unveiled through our uh, federal budget a you know a significant set of of incentives for uh, decarbonization, uh, much like the um, IRA here. And so there's a lot more in those buckets, but uh, but I'll I'll leave it at that. Uh, maybe we should pass to the next question. That was sure. Thank you. you. Have a stack. <laughs> I do have a stack. Uh, is and if so, how uh, is the new Indo-Pacific strategy engaging with Canada's diaspora communities? 
if you're, <laughs> I, I, I might have spoken too much, but you know, I knew you know a, a little bit about the you diaspora a lot communities, about <laughs> and uh, I. So I think it's a very important point because I mean, there's there are you know, so Canada has four hundred thousand. That's you know, and we, I, I don't know if that number could be on the low side. Canadians living in uh, the Indo-Pacific. And so it's not just the, you know, the, the, the seven, seven percent of uh, the Canadian population is of South Asian descent, uh, you know, a little bit uh, north of that are of Chinese descent. And, you know, one in five, you know, of Canadians can draw their lineage back to the Indo-Pacific. And so there are significant diasporas, both in Canada. And what I would say about the diaspora communities in Canada is that, you know, those are huge untapped assets and uh, for so many reasons. And, um, you know, and as those diaspora communities, you know, engage more into, you know, political life, into economic life and, you know, an integrated way, um, we are seeing enormous benefits already. Um, for Canadians. And that's not just small businesses working back and forth, but it's also, um, you know, the heart of our, uh, our, our, our public diplomacy and our cultural and, and personal diplomacy that is, you know, that's the stuff that actually binds countries and peoples together. And uh, governments can only do so much. And, but it's only when you have these, these strong people to people ties that you get and you unlock that next level. And so, and what I would say there is that we are at the beginning of a process. And so this is the, 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 when I go back to Canada, I look at the airport and I, I see, you know, who's out there, who's working in these buildings. This is a very different place from the place I grew up in. And, you know, it makes me proud when I see that. And, and I look, I look at those kids because a lot of them are young and, you know, I look at them and think, what kind of country are they building? What kind of connectivity are they building? And, um, and so I see it as a huge asset and there will always be challenges, you know, with diaspora communities, because it's not just, you know, uh, countries trying to influence other countries via their diasporas. It's putting pressure on diaspora communities. And often, you know, um, you know, we worry a lot about what that is. Um, but, uh, and so those are challenges that we need to manage as well. I'll just add, uh, I agree with all that uh, Rana said, but I'll just add, uh, you know, like the U.S., our universities are, are now huge uh, generators of, of goodwill and network. Uh, we, we have a very large uh, yeah, group of uh, foreign students, uh, mostly from, for UBC, mostly Indo-Pacific, and we cover the whole region. And they go back, they, many stay in Canada, many go back, and it's becoming a huge uh, pool of people where who have experienced, uh, you know, shared values and a great experience. Usually they come out very happy. I'm in touch with a lot of them and it's pretty remarkable. And they're doing great, some of them rising in all kinds of governments in the Indo-Pacific region. So, but Canada has not been very active, you know, using, using that, uh, that pool. But yeah, Canada, like the U.S., has this huge, uh, huge human capital reservoir here. <laughs> We, we only have about a minute left, and so this, this last question may lead us out into our one and hors d'oeuvres afterwards. <laughs> but uh, what, does, uh, what does Canada's new Indo-Pacific strategy say about Canada's role in the world? Small power, medium power, ascending power, descending power? Smart power. <laughs> 
It's the I, only way you can be in this world. Yeah. <laughs> Network power, uh, entrepreneurial power. Yeah, be part of it. There's a, an awareness of an age of change, disruption, uh, that calls for entrepreneurial solutions. And I think Canada wants to, uh, to be part of, has a lot to offer in bringing people together, working with partners and looking for solutions. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, so with mm -hmm. that, um, let me leave you with uh, my thanks to, to Rana and Eve for a very stimulating discussion. And for everyone here in the audience, the audience at home, hopefully you'll join us here next time. Uh, so this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California in its 121st year is now adjourned. Thank you. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.